0: We have now established that the alchemical fish the Echinaeus Remora, was supposedly difficult to catch, for it resided in the deepest, most dangerous depths of the ocean. If someone knew how to catch it, it could extract the precious gem, the ambiguously colored draconite, that resided within. But how does one lure this fish to the surface? Like, one lures a loathsome thought out of one's unconscious mind. Well, one might humorously say with a fishing net or a rod, and they would be correct, But keep in mind, the alchemist was not as concerned with physical processes, at least later on in the alchemical tradition. Rather, it was the philosophy of alchemy that was important. To use Jungian terms, it was more about transforming one's ego so it could reach a closer approximation to the Jungian self. Upon reaching that higher state, one would not have need for rods or nets. Rather, the fish would come to you. Here is how the alchemist would bring the Echinaeus Tremora to the surface. As we pointed out in the last chapter, the Echinaeus has a round head. It uses this odd appendage to stick to either larger fish or ships. This way, it could travel greater distances. In ancient times, this tiny fish was given such importance and feared so heavily by sailors because it was believed that it could stop a ship dead in its tracks. To the alchemist, they viewed the remora's ability to attach to a ship as, conceptually, the same as iron attaching to a magnet. There is an intrinsic, invisible, arcane property to both the magnet and the thing it attracts. The remora bears an arcane union with the ship or larger fish, just as the iron does with the magnet, the man with the woman, and light with darkness. In order to bring forth the Echeneus, one must become a living magnet. One must figure out how to isolate that invisible arcane substance that resides within the magnet and possess it within oneself. As for what that arcane substance is, Jung says the following, quote, the magnet of the wise, which is to draw the wonder-working fish to the surface, can, our text says, be taught. The content of this secret teaching is the real arcanum of alchemy, the discovery or production of the Prima Materia. The Prima Materia is commonly understood in alchemy as the state of the universe before the beginning of time. Often, the Prima Materia is thought of as the first substance from which the entire universe was created. Now, of course, this material doesn't exist. but That's not the point. The point is that the alchemist was trying to illustrate an initial psychic situation. To understand this best, let me ask you the following question. What was the universe like before it came to be? Our ancestors have used such descriptive terms as heaven, shadow, mother, mother nature, dragon, chaos, dragon of chaos, and more. For myself, I picture a formless void, which is what I'm sure a lot of you think of. One name that is often given to the prima materia is magnesia. Not to be confused with magnesium oxide, by the way. Magnesia is the complete or conjoined mixture from which this moisture is extracted, i.e. the root matter of our stone. This moisture, the magnesia, is the arcane substance. The invisible aspect of iron or steel that the magnet is drawn to. This quote-unquote moisture, interestingly enough, is white. Once again, the colors of black and white and the morality they represent are projected onto something. The prima materia is both the black void as well as the white magnesia. Now, the magnesia is the prima materia that lies within the stone, the object that the magnet wishes to attract. This doesn't answer, however, what the prima materia of the magnet is. What must one extract from the magnet in order to attract the magnesia? This substance is known by many names. Jung, among many other alchemists, refer to it as the sal sapiente, or salt of the wise. Another alchemist named Dorn, who Jung cites frequently in this chapter, calls it veritas. Veritas is Latin for truth. For Dorne, veritas resides in all natural things, including the human body. It is a metaphysical substance which needeth no medicament, being itself an incorrupt medicament. It is the medicine improving that which is no longer into that which it was before its corruption, and that which is not into that which it ought to be. This is the sal sapiente, the prima materia, of the magnet. By liberating that substance from its physical corrupted body, one could use it to draw the Echinaeus to the surface, the philosopher's stone from nature, or the Jungian self from the unconscious. The question that follows is how does one liberate the veritas, the sal sapiente, the prima materia, from the natural object? Well, the answer to that question reflects the nature of alchemy as more of a philosophy than a chemical science. One discovers how to liberate the veritas when the doctrine enters the consciousness of the adept as a gift of the Holy Ghost. When taken literally, one might pass these words off as superstitious gibberish. However, if one takes these words psychologically, they suddenly make a little more sense. As Jung has pointed out, the conscious ego is driven by unconscious forces. Sometimes those unconscious forces can compensate the conscious ego with knowledge it did not previously possess. If one recognizes the existence of their unconscious mind and pays proper attention to it, one can extract the knowledge they require from it. Just as one extracts the Quicksilver from the Black Obsidian, the Econius from the Dark Ocean, or the universe from the formless prima materia, one can extract the self from the unconscious. I want you all to keep in mind that the alchemists existed during a time where they could not conceive of something like the collective unconscious. Therefore they needed to project these unconscious processes onto the outside world. While the alchemical doctrine is not literally true in a scientific materialist sense, it does point to psychological truths. Whereas the alchemist might integrate the Sal Sapiente to attract the Echinaeus and the precious black and white jewel in its head, the ego would confront the unknown, integrate the unconscious knowledge it needs, and eventually attract the precious black and white Jungian self. The aforementioned Dorn had some intimation of this. Jung believed he was the first person to realize that the chief goal of alchemy, the Philosopher's Stone, was both a physical and psychic reality. One could only achieve that end-perfection by bringing one's inner being, to use Jordan Peterson's words, into perfect alignment. Only then could they attain their reward externally. In the Philosopher's Stone, according to the Rosinus ad Saratantum Episcopum, the Philosopher's Stone was described as below thee as to obedience, above thee as to dominion, therefore from thee as to knowledge, about thee as to equals. Young clarifies what this description means. Quote, The alchemical adept can expect obedience from it, but on the other hand, the stone exercises dominion over him. Since the stone is a matter of knowledge or science, it springs from man, but it is outside him, in his surroundings, among his equals, i.e. those of like mind. In other words, the philosopher's stone was a paradoxical unity of opposites, just like the union self the former is what the alchemist tried to obtain physically, but could only do so if he first attained the inner reward, the Jungian self. As for how one's ego can become one with the Jungian self, we addressed part of this early on in the series. You integrate the unconscious into consciousness, the contents of one's shadow, anima, and animus, one piece of unconscious information that Jung and Dorn believed was key to that perfect alignment was the realization that we were formerly one with the universe. Before the universe came into existence, all of creation was contained in one seed, a seed planted in the prima materia, the formless void. When the Big Bang happened, or whatever creation myth you believe in happened, that seed, split, and all of the opposites latent in that seed sprung forth. This echoes what we discussed in chapter 9, when we talked about how the universe, or God, used to be in an ouroboric, unconscious state. Once God became conscious of his shadow, he split off from it. From that point, all the opposites that laid between infinite light and infinite darkness came forward. Once you realize that your consciousness was created to the end, that it may recognize its descent from a higher unity, they can begin to work their way back to that higher state. They work their way back to that state by paying due and careful regard to the source from which they came and by executing its commands intelligently and responsibly. One pays attention to this source by following the dictates of one's conscience. That is the Jungian self that resides in your unconscious, guiding your conscious ego. If one does this, they thereby afford the psyche as a whole the optimum degree of life and development. Before I conclude this chapter with Jung's final argument, I'd like to try to do something that I haven't done enough of throughout this series. Link this book back to Jordan Peterson. One thing Peterson has been given a lot of flack for is his defense of religion, particularly his inability to answer whether or not he believes Jesus actually rose from the dead. I'm not about to try and answer definitively what he believes. What I will say is that Ion might give us some intimations as to what Peterson believes. As I just said in regards to the Philosopher's Stone, the alchemist could only obtain it as a physical reward once his inner being was brought into perfect alignment. Jung, among many others, drew a parallel between the Philosopher's Stone and Jesus Christ. As he pointed out in chapter 5, Jesus brought his entire being into perfect alignment by descending to hell following his crucifixion. It was by confronting the greatest darkness that Jesus was able to have his light shine its greatest as well. When both his inner light and inner darkness were fully saturated and balanced, he, like the alchemists, were given the physical reward. In Jesus' case, his physical body resurrected. Jesus' being was no longer, to use Dorn's words, corrupted by the physical world, no longer bound to it. Now it could transcend. I think Peterson has a problem with answering definitively whether or not Jesus resurrected because he doesn't know what might happen if a human brought their entire physical and psychological being into perfect alignment. Moreover, he doesn't know if the story of Jesus was just people projecting psychic truths onto physical reality. Nobody knows. But there is one thing we know for sure. The notion of a transcendental being, a perfect being that we strive to emulate, holds enough psychic power that it can hold sway over billions of people. This is why Peterson feels compelled to defend religion. Within not just the story of Jesus, but the entire history of global religion, are insights into psychic truths. If we cast these symbols away, condemning them as only superstition and stupidity, we lose what knowledge we have of the unconscious, and that knowledge includes how to stave off its wrath when it has been ignored. Thank you all for watching. Make sure to like, subscribe, and share. Also, if you like the work I'm doing here and want to support me, please consider donating to my Subscribe Start campaign. Depending on how much you donate, you will gain a certain number of rewards. If you can't donate, that's totally fine. I understand with everything going on. What helps me out most of all, actually, is just sharing this video. Share it in a Jordan Peterson Facebook group or something. It helps me out more than you could possibly realize. Finally, if you want more discussion surrounding ION, make sure to subscribe to uberboyo and young to live by they provide a lot more insight into these concepts and find ways to make the subject less terrifying and much more fun links to their channels in the description box below until next time just remember stay yellow